You're listening to Pep Talk, discussing policy, evidence and practice in Wales. Pep Talk is brought to you by the Wales Centre for Public Policy at Cardiff University. Hello and welcome to Pep Talk. So what is gender equality and why does it matter? Well, if we take the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as a starting point, the UN states that as well as being a fundamental human right, gender equality is a necessary foundation for a peaceful, prosperous and sustainable world, and that providing women and girls with equal access to education, healthcare, decent work, and representation in political and economic decision-making processes will fuel sustainable economies and benefit societies and humanity at large. Now, it's also an issue that's at the forefront of the Welsh government's work, as they work towards becoming Britain's first feminist government, an aim that was announced in May 2018 by the then First Minister, Carwyn Jones. And to help them get there, the Welsh government's been working on a gender equality review delivered by charity Huarateg, which means fair play in English, and also working with us. So I'm your host, Emma Taylor-Collins at Wales Centre for Public Policy. As I said, gender equality is a key issue here for us. We've been helping the Welsh government with its gender equality review, providing evidence on various issues from a review of international policy and practice on gender equality, to a Nordic exchange enabling Welsh Government to learn from Nordic nations about their approaches, to a review of gender budgeting tools, methods and approaches. And with me today to help unpack this topic are three experts who will each give their views on the issue and offer insight into practical ways the Welsh Government can achieve their gender equality goals. My first guest is Keris Furlong, Chief Executive of Huarateg, Wales's leading gender equality charity and the organisation which led the Welsh Government's Gender Equality Review. Keris, could you tell us a little bit about what Huarateg does? Yes, I can. So Huarateg, as you said, is the leading gender equality charity in Wales. We've been around since 1992. Uh, we work right across Wales in a number of different ways that are quite unique and set us apart from some of our sister organisations across other nations of the UK. So we work directly with women, training them, building their confidence and skills, improving their prospects in the labour market. We work directly with businesses and organisations to try and positively change culture within organisations to make them better places to recruit, retain and progress women. And we also do wide-ranging policy and research to identify best practice and to influence policy at a strategic level. Also with us today, dialing in all the way from Sweden, is Magnus Jacobsen, gender expert and communication strategist at the Swedish Association of Local Authorities and Regions, SALAR. Magnus, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, SALAR is a member's organisation, as you might guess from the name. Uh, so uh, all the 290 municipalities and 21 regions of Sweden in Sweden are members to our organisation. Uh, And our primary duty is to promote local self-governance. We have a a relatively strong tradition of uh, local self-governance in Sweden, uh, with municipalities and and regions being governed by directly elected assemblies and um, having the right to levy their own taxes, etc. One of our key missions is to guard this local self-governance against the government and and try to to minimise intrusive legislation, so to speak, and maximise powers of our locally elected officials. We're also the country's largest employees' organisation, representing some one million employees within the public sector, of whom 80% are women. So deals that we make with trade unions are quite important in the the respect of... uh, uh, women's conditions in the labour market also. One way to uh, strengthen local self-government is to 
see to that our members are capable of delivering high quality services to their citizens. So that's one of our key missions also to support development works in all kinds of areas, social welfare, housing, schools, healthcare, elderly care, etc. And finally, we've got Dr. Angela O'Hagan here, who's Senior Lecturer in the Department of Social Sciences at the Glasgow School for Business and Society and Deputy Director of the Wise Centre for Economic Justice. And Angela's one of the co-authors of our report on tackling inequality through gender budgeting. Thank you for travelling all the way from Scotland to be here with us today. Would you like to briefly explain to us what we mean by the term gender budgeting? I'm very happy to be here. It's not really that far. and It's really good to have the opportunity to exchange practice across the different parts of the UK as we all try to um, advance what we mean by gender budgeting. I suppose the first thing to say is that gender budgeting is not about separate budgets for women and men. That's a very common misconception. But really it's about looking at how public policy and spending and revenue decisions all affect women and men because of the very gender dimensions that structure women and men's lives mean that public policy, public spending and public um, revenue decisions have different effects because of that those gendered realities. So gender budgeting is about examining how public resources are being allocated and then maybe redistributing them in such a way that they actually deliver some of the equality objectives. And it's about using public finance and public finance allocations as a means of advancing gender equality and the gender equality commitments. So in that way, gender budgeting, you could say, activates gender mainstreaming because it takes us into a whole systems, a whole government approach to advancing what many governments at all levels say are their commitments to gender equality. But if you follow the money and identify how spending is being allocated or not allocated to advance those objectives or are programmes and policies being financed which actually reinforce persistent or pre-existing inequalities. So it's about taking a gendered lens, using good, robust gendered data to interrogate policy outcomes to then reapply that learning and how decisions about policy objectives and the associated resources are matched. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, we'll start with a bit of context. So if we've already talked about the, uh, the Welsh Government's aim is to become the UK's first feminist government and make Wales one of the safest places in Europe for women. Karis, could you tell us uh, what we mean by the term feminist government and how well you think the Welsh Government's doing and working towards that goal? Yeah, and uh, just by way of a bit of further context, when we initially started this work following the announcement from Cara and Jones in 2018, um, we did a short piece of review, a review over a couple of months that sort of got us the lay of the land and one of the things that came out really clearly from that was that we needed to unite behind a common and shared vision and understanding of what some of those terms including a feminist government meant in the context of Wales um, because it's, as Angela's indicated it can be easy to say these things but without meaning and understanding within government it's very hard to put into practice and make the difference that we want to see. So it was absolutely one of the core objectives of phase two of the gender equality review was to not only put flesh on the bones, work with stakeholders and women to come up with a shared vision for gender equality, but also to identify what those values and ways of working and approaches are, which really are at the core of a feminist government. So that's 
a bit like Angela said, that the budget is about enabling you to actually act on those aspirations. The values and the approaches set out in, in a feminist government take it from being a theoretical aspiration to at the core of how government operates. So many people will know that both Canada and Sweden have both um, identified and articulated themselves and the way they work as feminist governments. And the Welsh government has already accepted these principles for a feminist government that we've set out that's been approved by the Welsh cabinet and it really says that uh, at the forefront that um, a feminist Welsh government is committed to equality of outcome for all women men and non-binary people and actively works to drive cultural and structural change it goes beyond what we've seen in some of our previous legislation. Wales was at the forefront when we had devolution at 1999 of embedding equality into its legislation, making sure that Welsh ministers and civil servants had a duty to consider equality of opportunity for everybody. This goes beyond that. It's about how Welsh government will work proactively to advance equality, remove barriers to women's participation across the board and really put a gender perspective at the heart of all decision making also important and really important to us all of us working on the review was that those feminist principles weren't limited to a certain type or group of women but that we took a really intersectional approach to the work of the review and so we are explicit in the definition of a feminist government that that intersectional approach uh, applies to all work and ensures the diversity of representation participation and voice across the board there are also a number of values i guess uh, we would call them that a core to that feminist government around particularly transparency openness accountability welcoming of critique and scrutiny and leading by example for other public bodies so we're trying to in collaboration with other organizations feel comfortable in talking about these principles enable welsh government to not feel afraid that calling themselves a feminist government is something unachievable actually all of these values and approaches are, are the ways that we'd want to see most governments operating anyway. I just want to bring Magnus in there actually on, on the point you made about the focus being on a quality of outcomes. Magnus I know that's something that's central to the way that you and others in Sweden think about gender equality. Could you talk a bit about that? Well it definitely is and, and um, as a nation Sweden normally comes up among the top-ranked countries in an international comparison when we look at gender uh, equality. But that doesn't mean that we still face the same kind of structural inequalities as in any other country. Uh, when it comes to, to the services of our, of our members, uh, our starting point is that there will be no gender equality on a national level without our members promoting uh, gender equality within, within the services, but also in their roles as employers and as political arenas. There is some sharp legislation uh, compelling our members to work for gender equality within specific areas, like in schools, for example. The School Act and, and the curricula states that all schools should promote gender equality and, and challenge uh, or transform gender stereotypes. As, as employers, uh, our members have to comply with the Discrimination Act, which contains paragraphs both on anti-discrimination and active measures to promote equal opportunities uh, when it comes to income and pay and uh, combating sexual harassment etc but when it comes to service delivery there is no equivalent legislation no national 
legislation compelling our members to safeguard that, uh, for instance, their elderly services is uh, uh, equally good for both women and men. And being a members' organization, that's very important. We, we're a politically governed organization. We're governed by regionally and locally elected uh, politicians. We can't tell our members what to do. So when we try to promote gender equality, which they, our members have given us the, the duty to do this, this, this is what we do in, in, um, as a mission on their request, uh, we, but we can't tell them what to, to do this. So we have to, to uh, sell this idea of, of gender mainstreaming and gender equality in, in other ways. Uh, and of course it is about a fundamental right, but this is also about enhancing quality and, fi- and efficiency of, of public services. And sometimes it's very easy to see what you gain from a gender perspective. Sometimes it's not quite as easy when it comes to waste management, for instance, but in all services, targeting women and men, girls and boys, it's relatively easy to see that with a gender perspective, you will not only meet your targets, but perhaps exceed them uh, in terms of quality. You've talked a little bit about what, what happens there, um, gender equality in Sweden and, and, and about how important it is for you not to be sort of telling your members what to do. And I, and I just wondered, given the importance of kind of engaging beyond government there, I wonder if, Keris, you can talk a bit about the role of civil society and other groups, local authorities, like the example in Sweden, in, in advancing gender equality goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there are two sort of pitfalls that we were keen not to fall into at the outset. One was asking for loads more money when we knew there wasn't going to be any. And two was pointing the finger only at Welsh Government and saying, if you change, everything will be perfect, we'll have a gender equal Wales. We knew neither of those were right or would lead to success. So in a different way to many reviews that government commissions, which can often be academic led, we wanted to do a lot of stakeholder engagement. Um, And so we worked not only with women's organisations, but right across public services, engaging with everybody from health to housing, those with the qualities in their brief and those without. And that has enabled us to build a kind of coalition of people for whom some of them have had these conversations about gender equality and the applicability to their area of work for the first time. Uh, We also worked right across government in interviewing civil servants from top to bottom, from very senior roles to quite junior roles. And for many of them, that process itself was engaging and eye-opening because it enabled them to think, okay, well, this is something I need to take back and consider. I think the challenge will always be, as we move towards implementation, um, not only holding Welsh Government to account for the recommendations that the review has made, but us ourselves as an organisation, we've learned a huge amount through this process and others, um, and continuing to go and push that message out. Because as Alison Parkin, who worked on the review with us and, and others, has said many times, you know, there's not a huge amount new in lots of the literature that we have reviewed and, and brought up. But what we have tried to do is ground it very much in the context in Wales today, the challenges that we face today and the aspirations of the current First Minister and what he set out. So making it something that is realistically implementable. That's a really nice segue for us, I think, to to come on to Angela and gender budgeting as a way of, as you said, activating gender mainstreaming. So as I said earlier, Angela worked on a report we recently published on tackling inequality through gender budgeting, and you drew upon examples of 
good practice in gender budgeting in other countries. Can you tell us, Angela, a bit about what you found? Sure. Um, gender budgeting has been around as an idea for 30 years or more, starting in Australia with activity at, you know, at the individual state level, not at the, the national government level. And that showed us as well the vulnerability of some of these approaches to the electoral cycle. And so the need to build in, in the way that, that Keris has been describing, build it into the way of being and doing of a government, as well as having some legislative underpinning that gives that protection to, you know, against the political cycle and, and you know, the electoral cycle and political change there. An example of where they've managed to sustain that and well up to now, and now there's some some significant political challenges to the work in Andalusia and southern Spain. They started in 2005, building a very robust process that's been led by the Ministry of Finance data-driven and very outcomes-focused. And that has built a very robust methodology, the Gender Plus model, whereby all policies and programmes have to demonstrate how they're advancing gender equality. The early language around that was how are policies and spending acting as motors for change? And I think that's a really good way of of describing what we're doing. There's a nice kind of active feel to that. And they've then followed that up with gender audits that go background, looking to assess what have the outcomes been of those policies and resource allocations over time. So constantly developing and revising the the model there now faced with some quite significant political challenges given the change of the political administration in uh, Andalusia. So that presents another aspect of how some of the fragility of policymaking and the need for, if we view gender budgeting as a tool of feminist policy change, then that's about also maximising political opportunities as they arise. So in Wales, the opportunity of the commitment of of a political leader and political leadership and political will is absolutely key to all of this. In the Austrian example, constitutional change, similarly um, with Iceland, constitutional change from different starting points, but using that opportunity of constitutional change to build in the legislative underpinning to support the requirements of government and all government departments to be engaged in gender analysis in the budget setting process and in the policy making process. In the UK and Wales and in Scotland, we have this legislative infrastructure embedding the requirements for equalities analysis. As to how well executed that is, as to how strong the compliance is, that's a whole other podcast in itself, I think, really looking at how that's used in reality. And it's exactly what Keris was saying earlier on. It's about that starting point, inculcating and building that behaviour within government and not seeing equality analysis as some extra additional activity, but rather it's absolutely core to what, what should be happening. Other interesting examples internationally that show the relationship between Parliament and government, I think, is the Canadian example where they've been developing what they call GBA+, Gender Budget Analysis+. Plus. So taking as their starting point how to build an intersectional equalities analysis into, into policy making and resource allocation. And the push back to government from parliamentary committees has been a really important feature of trying to build the methodology, build the practice um, within government. So seeing that constant tension and challenge. And that was something that was useful for us as well in the Scottish example, when following the independence referendum in 2014 and the subsequent Scotland Act that expanded some of the devolved competences and particularly around taxation, which 
significantly change the character of our budget from being a spending budget to being a spending and revenue budget. And so that meant we needed a new budget process. So there was a review group commissioned between the government and the parliament. And um, I was fortunate enough to be a member of that, that review group and able to work with colleagues to try to embed some recommendations around the sorts of principles that uh, Keris has been talking about, and particularly that openness to scrutiny and that openness to accountability. And so what we've been trying to do there is open up the budget process so that it is seen for what it is. It's a year-round process and beyond. It's not just the theatre of the draft budget being presented to Parliament or the UK budget with the Chancellor and the red box on the front steps, all that kind of theatre that goes on. The budgets are about allocating resources to programmes that have different life spans, you know, objectives to be realised over different time periods. And so that means different types of parliamentary scrutiny and engagement across public authorities. And as Keris has said, it's not just about focusing on the one central or subnational government, but rather all the other agencies that are engaged and resourced to deliver the equalities outcomes in different strategies and programmes. So that openness to scrutiny. So that's what I mean when we talk about gender budgeting as, as activating mainstreaming. Mainstreaming has maybe quite rightly a bit of a bad press at times because it's not always activated because it's it's difficult to see everything in the round. But that's what we're asking of governments and of public authorities. And gender budgeting, taking that whole systems approach, is, I think, a very convincing and very effective tool to do that. Could you talk a bit about what, what you think we mean by that intersectional approach and then what that looks like in a gender budgeting approach? In general, it's about you know, understanding that people aren't unidimensional and that the the gender, the class, the race, disability or otherwise of an individual characterises their experiences because that's how you know, we experience discrimination and disadvantage in different ways um, on the basis of different characteristics, some of it intentional and some of it the unintended consequences of the structural dynamics of how we, we've set up society, how we've set up our infrastructure. Very different experiences of trying to access employment or access services because of our different characteristics. So taking that intersectional analysis in policy making again means thinking about people in the round, thinking about how these different characteristics interact and intersect with one another and the dimensions um, you know, across that, that produces across different policy areas. And as you said, Angela, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the challenges that governments have faced in implementing gender budgeting. I think one of the first challenges is a positive disposition. It's about recognising that gender equality is a legitimate political goal and that it is the responsibility of us all and of public authorities and governmental institutions at all levels to be engaged in this as a legitimate you know, public good and political goal. It's not an add-on, it's not something that we do when we've done everything else, when, when we're not in the throes of austerity. It's, it absolutely has to be a starting point for politics and for public policy. And so once you know, there is that conviction um, that gender equality is a legitimate thing for governments to be doing. There's then some, you know, there are some structural and administrative and institutional things to try and get right. You know, the way that that policymakers work 
getting encouraging people to to work across policy analysis and policy development, bringing finance into the mix with with policymakers and not seeing finance as something that sits separately. That quite often happens that the budget is seen or budget processes are seen as the the domain and the exclusive you know, provision of finance departments when actually you know that everybody should be involved in the budget because the budget arguably is the principal expression of a government's priorities. So what is a government planning to do with public money? And so all sorts of actors, as we call them, within the policy process should be involved. And those priorities should, as Keris has been saying, be informed by really effective consultation and engagement with people outside government and with really robust equalities data coming into it. And that's quite often a challenge for government. We don't have the data. We struggle with some data issues in the devolved countries because of population sizes and because of how some of our big data sets are constructed at the UK national level. They don't always serve as well in Scotland or Wales. So what we've done in the report is set out a series of of favourable conditions that look at that predisposition to gender equality, then look at the institutional arrangements and what legislative underpinning there is for that, how engaged in the process are different government departments and non-governmental actors and then how does that then all manifest in the different analytical tools that are used in formulating um, the budget and what do the budget documents themselves actually look like? Do they contain that that equalities analysis? Can I ask Angela a question? Please. Yes, and of course yeah, the budgeting is at the very core of, of gender mainstreaming as a strategy. Um, we have a few of our members that have been trying it out both in full scale and as um, smaller pilots programs you might call it one challenge that we see is that okay it's one thing to analyze budget outcomes and it's one thing to analyze this from a gender perspective but what happens once you have detected an imbalanced um, resource allocation where men get more money than women for example and and where gender equality actually requires that you reallocate resources we've seen examples where politicians don't really want to take the step further they they just stop at the analysis and they're content with just seeing the picture okay here we have an imbalance but do we have the means or or the guts to to do something uh, about it Uh, what's the uh, experience of on an international level? How, how do governments and, and in different countries actually uh, act upon these data? I think that that question, Magnus, is really core to a lot of the practice around how gender equality policies are developed and, and structured. We see it a lot, not just in the UK, but elsewhere with equalities legislation that requires equality impact analysis. And I think quite often what happens is equality impact analysis are conducted at the wrong level, at the wrong time in the policy formulation process, quite often maybe at a more junior level, rather than informing policy objectives from the outset. And they also take on a fairly kind of formulaic approach and end up being an exercise in counting people within the protected characteristics that perhaps reveal some problems, some areas that need to be addressed. But as you've just said, it's that converting that findings, that finding in the data into a policy action. 
You know, so if, if, for example, you identify in an equality impact assessment that X members of the community, X group within the community are underrepresented, then that surely a policy action should follow from that rather than haven't we done well, we have identified how this policy might affect everybody and then we're just setting that aside. And I think we see that, that very often. I think there's also a a difficulty when the unintended consequences of policy have led to an imbalance in resource allocation, which, again, unintentionally, but in and of itself, reinforces persistent inequalities. And I think an example that, that always shows that very well is investment in vocational training, because in the UK, the modern apprenticeship scheme, we've done a lot of work looking at this in Scotland, because what we were seeing was that unintentionally, because there was very little positive action work going on in the background, breaking down occupational segregation, breaking down stereotypes around different types of jobs, that there wasn't any of those structural interventions to reorientate who was accessing what skills frameworks, that it meant then that the funding from government was being allocated um, very unequally to, to women and men, with the skills frameworks dominated where men predominate, um, attracting significantly more of the public funding than the skills areas where women tend to predominate. And unsurprisingly, they are in lower skilled, lower paid, shorter training periods. So there was a huge imbalance in that public spending. So that took a long time to build an understanding of why those dynamics occur, what the causes are, and then to try and reorientate some of the spending and including additional spending or spending from within the allocations to do some of the awareness raising, some of the the, um, deconstructing the stereotypes and some of the institutional engagement from the school system through the the various bodies involved in in skills and employability. I wonder if we can bring Keris in here. Keris, I know the work that you've done looked at assessing impact and I wondered if you could talk a bit about what you found. Yeah, of course. And I suppose, again, just to bring it back to, you know, how we want to achieve this process of change. We knew we had political leadership and commitment at senior levels. We needed greater evidence and to review kind of where we were now in Wales and and where we needed to go. We then needed to look at, okay, what does a new approach look like? What tools, processes, structural change, legislative change might we need to be able to do that to achieve the culture change that we eventually want to see? And so when we looked at the tools, processes and structures, of course, we've discussed the budget and, you know, that was absolutely crucial to delivering on an equalities mainstreaming approach. But we also looked in very practical terms and walked through a process of policy development of when a need is identified, how do we then respond to that need as government? How do we think about evidence? How do we think about the impact on different groups? And what we, in simple terms, found was much more of a compliance culture of we will review at the end of that process whether or not there's a disproportionate negative or positive impact on different groups, by which time, afraid to say it's a bit late to do anything about it, and we've already allocated the budget because that's disconnected from the process anyway. So we're suggesting in our work here a different approach to that, and that's at the heart of the equalities mainstreaming approach. And it also talks to the point about intersectionality that we talked about before, you know, that that holy trinity, if you like, of having the civil servants who are embedded in designing, developing, implementing policy or legislative change, academics who are rooted in best practice and international rigour, 
but also experts by experience, the wider stakeholders, the voice that we tried to bring through the report, who otherwise are often the victim of the unintended consequences that Angela talked about. And if we can achieve that using some of the tools and processes that we've suggested, which are not rocket science, but almost just require a flipping of the way that we've done things previously, to really think about the impact on different groups of people from the outset of a policy to get us to a better solution. And, you know, if there's, I keep getting asked if there's one message coming out of the review, what is it? And I said, well, again, this isn't rocket science, but if you want to achieve something radically different to what we've achieved for the last 20 generations, you have to do something radically different. So this is why the report's called Deeds, Not Words. That leads us on really nicely to our, our kind of final section here. Um, and, and Keris, I think you probably already answered the question about, you know, what what is it? What's that kind of one piece of advice? Um, yeah, don't just talk about it. Do something yeah, about and, it. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is, um, you know, equality is not just the responsibility of those who feel... Uh, the impact of inequality most greatly and equalities isn't just the responsibility of the Minister for Equalities and it's not just the responsibility of the equalities unit or the or the researchers with a particular interest in it um, it's absolutely needs to be at the heart of government it absolutely needs to be at the heart of the budget process it needs to be at the heart of our approach to policy making so um, as civil servants and Special advisors will have heard me saying, I want to see the whites in the minister's eyes across the whole cabinet table and talk to them and try and get that light bulb moment where they see actually this does have an impact on infrastructure, on waste management, on schools, on vocational education. Magnus, I wonder if we can turn to you. What piece of advice would you give us here in Wales in terms of helping us reach our gender equality goals? Well, I assume that, that the government will adopt gender mainstreaming as their main strategy for this work. Our experience is that we have for a number of years been very focused on the structural side of gender mainstreaming, meaning that we try to gender sensitize all governing documents, budgets, goals, policies, routines, guidelines, etc. Uh, and this, of course, is, is essential to, to build long-term sustainable change. But what we more and more need to address, I think, is the cultural side of it, meaning that there are actually people in these structures that are supposed to to carry this issue and to to make this change come through. And I think that the the, the blind spot of, of the strategy of gender mainstreaming so far has been that we underestimate the need to build competence, awareness, knowledge among these people who are supposed to integrate the gender perspective in their daily routines. So, uh, and also, like in any other kind of uh, development work or change programs, in order to, to get people, to involve people, uh, they need to, to know enough about the challenges and the issues to see the relevance of this change work for their own ordinary tasks in the organization. So competence building, awareness raising for, uh, to begin with, with, both for elected, elected officials, for top management, for key persons. That's essential if you want to get this strategy working in the long term. Angela, we'll, we'll finish with, uh, with some words of advice from you. 
I think there's two point, two things I want to say. One is the huge opportunity of the the work that's been done, that's resulted in deeds, not words, and and to to build that into the other great opportunity, which is the future generations framework, because that's about ensuring that equality analysis is the default way of working and not an additional, not an add-on. And I think the the roadmaps, the the review of gender equality and the recommendations in there, um, give a really clear steer. This was a politically commissioned piece of work. So the political will is to be tested in how the recommendations are implemented. And that, I think, means my second point, to be bold. That echoes Keres's challenge to, to take radical action. I would say there's no reason not to focus on gender equality as you know, the, and, and no reason not to embrace and, and run with the principles of a feminist government. There's no reason not to do that because there's plenty of reasons to work positively for a gender equal Wales. Thank you. Well, we've enjoyed an excellent discussion today and you can find the, the reports that we've mentioned on our website and on Huarteg's websites uh, and links to various pieces of work. So a big thank you to Keris, Angela and to Magnus for joining us today and thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pep Talk. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcasting app. And I hope you'll join us again soon for another Pep Talk.